This week we're finishing a two-week study on the book of Jude, and before I start that, I'm not going to address you all right now because I'm afraid if I do, I'll lose it. So I'll thank every one of you after the service. I'm not ignoring you. I'm just trying to keep myself composed. So this week we're finishing a two-week study on the book of Jude. Two weeks is not enough to go through the book of Jude in depth the whole way through it. Um, what we're doing is I we looked at a seven verses last week. We're going to look at the remaining verses this week. Um, last week, what we did is we looked at the why. And if you were here, you remember that I said Jude is writing to us to appeal to us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to us. Once for all delivered to the saints. But I also said that wrapped up in that appeal and the judgments that followed was love. And the, reasons I, the reason I said that and the distinctions that he made I said were love that he, the distinction that he made between believers and non-believers in the opening of his passage or the opening of his letter was because of the three judgments that followed. I believe that this distinction is in love because in Revelations twenty-two twelve, Jesus talking to John says, Behold, I am coming soon. I am bringing with me my, recomp- my recompense or my payment with me to repay each one of you what he has done. In Exodus 34, 7, we read that while God is a loving and gracious God, he will by no means clear the guilty. He's also revealed to us through Paul in Romans 3 that none of us is righteous, that none of us on our own seeks for God, that all of us, the whole world, will be held accountable to God, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we read in 6.23 that the wages of those sins that we commit against the holy and gracious, gracious and righteous God, the wages of that sin is death. Every one of us deserves that. And if the verse stopped there, I believe we would all be in trouble, but it doesn't. If you know the verse in Romans 6, Paul goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has made for us a way to be redeemed and saved from the judgment and the payment that is rightfully due us. In Romans 5.8, we read that, but God shows his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. If that's a confession that you have never made, And if you have never repented of your sins and embraced Christ in faith, I ask that you do that today. James tells us that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. And he asks us this question, what is our life? And he answers it, that our life is but a vapor, and for a time appears and then vanishes. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You have now been called to repentance before a holy God. And as the psalmist says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What I want to do this week is I want to look at several of the sins that Jude lists and expressly states. We're not going to look at all of them because if you know, there are some very weird allusions in this book to non-canonical books that we don't take as scripture. But Jude alludes to them. I believe he was directed to do that in the Holy Spirit. When we get there, we'll talk a little bit about them. But what I want to do is most closely look at verses 20 and 21. Those two, I believe, are how we fight against everything else that Jude talks about in his letter. So what I want to do is I'm going to read the whole letter. We're going to go through it. And then we are going to look at those two verses. 
Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds, of ungodliness, and that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all, of the, and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Father, as we look at the remaining passages and the remaining message of Jude to us this morning, I pray that you would be with us. Father, that your Holy Spirit would take the words from my mouth and and take it to the hearts and the ears of the people that are hearing. Lord, I pray that you would open us up to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And Father, as we look at what Jude is condemning these people of, and then the only surefire way to fight against that, I pray that we would hear and that we would understand and that we would apply these principles to our lives. Father, we be with us now. Be with me now as the Lord says, I need you. Every hour I need you. Father, I can't do this under my own power. I need you to come and hold me up and speak for me. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I know I skipped the doxology. I'll get to that later. There's a reason I skipped the doxology. One of the first things I want us to notice in the remaining passage of Jude is the very first thing that Jude says. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, relying on a very subjective experience that is the basis upon which all of the sins that flow out of these people is coming from. If you see that, they, re- they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Why I want you to pay attention to that is because I believe that the fault of relying on dreams or any other subjective experience that is not backed up and confirmed by Scripture. I believe that because I believe this period of what is called special revelation is closed. 
I believe Jude speaks to this in verse 3 when he says that he has given us the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I believe the writer of Hebrews understands this when he says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I also believe if you consider the opening passages in John, in light of what we just read out of Hebrews, when John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as to the only Son from the Father. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the Holy Scriptures that you hold in your hands. If you want to know the will of God, it's contained in the word of God. And that comes from James MacDonald. His thing is the will of God is the word of God. So listen, God's not going to speak to you. What I mean by he's not going to speak for you is he is not going to give you anything new, any new truth that is not already contained on the pages of Scripture. You may be called to serve in a capacity that looks different than what I've been called to or what Mike has been called to or Lee or Nancy or any other name that you can think of. But what I want you to recognize is all of those names that I just mentioned have been called by God to a purpose that he has already established. He's not going to call you to live in the woods somewhere completely segregated from everybody where you don't have contact with anyone. I can confidently say that because in the scripture, God calls us to love our neighbor. If he calls you to love your neighbor, he can't subsequently call you to seclude yourself from everyone. He's not going to call us or give us an instruction that is in direct defiance of the word of God. Anytime you think you hear a word from the Lord, weigh it against the full counsel of Scripture. In context, do not just cherry-pick verses that when you take them out of context, they seem to affirm what you believe. There's been a lot of books and a lot of false teachers that have done that. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say by piecing it together any way you want to piece it together. But we are not called, we are not allowed to do that. Second thing I want you to see is that these people are making blasphemous statements. The last statement that Jude makes in verse 8 is that they're, making, they're blaspheming the glorious ones. And then the, verse, the first statement he makes in verse 10 is that they blaspheme all that they do not understand. Right in the middle of that is we ha- where we have this first strange allusion where Jude is alluding to a book that I talked about that is called The Assumption of Moses. I'm not going to spend time here. It is a um, book that has a several... Um, yeah, controversies surrounding it. It is not canonical, which means it is not contained in the scriptures. You will not read that Archangel Michael contended with the devil for Moses, except here in Jude. There is no manuscripts of this assumption of Moses, but in alluding to it in Jude, the Holy Spirit inspired him to do so. I believe his readers knew what he was talking about. We have to take for granted maybe that this was true or that it was a story that was used. But it is the fact that Jude alludes to it in our Holy Scriptures means we need to pay attention to it. So there it is. What I believe is important that we understand from these verses 
is that there are demonic forces in the world today. There are demonic forces in work, at work in the world today, and we dare not brush them off or make jokes about it. Paul very clearly understood this in Ephesians 6, when after he tells us to put on the full armor of God, he tells us because we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. The struggles that we have in this life are not against you and me. They're not against the people in our life. They're not against the government. They're not against anybody else you can name. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are wrestling a spiritual fight. We are having a spiritual fight. Do not downplay that. Do not joke about the spirits that are in the world. Do not take lightly the evil that is now present. In verse 11, Jude gives us three, three biblical examples of the attitudes of these people. He starts with the way of Cain from Genesis 4. If you know the story of Cain in Genesis 4, we read that Cain and his brother Abel present offerings to God. In verse 4, we're told that God had regard for Abel and his sacrifice. And then in verse 5, for Cain and his sacrifice, he had no regard. We're not told in Genesis 4 why God had the different reaction but we are told that the different reaction made Cain very mad and that God gave him a warning to hold his anger and how to hold his anger. Cain fails to hear God's words, and two verses later, he kills his brother in what was the first murder of the world. The best insight we get into this, I believe, is in in 1 John 3. It's here we learn that Cain's, Cain's deeds were evil, and that is why he murdered his brother. I'm not sure the deeds that John is speaking about apply exclusively to his murder. But I believe the overall attitude of Cain in bringing his offering were part of the evil deeds that God, that caused God not to look upon him in favor. We read in Proverbs 15.8 that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Cain was an evil person who, being jealous of his brother, jealous that the Lord appealed and accepted Abel's offering, but not to his and he wanted more. The second error we find is Balaam. And this is a story that comes to us from Numbers 22 through 24, and then again in 31. If you've never read the story of Balaam in 22 through 24, it is interesting as well as confusing. There's a talking donkey for all of those who don't, haven't read it. The donkey talks to Balaam. Read it, it's pretty good. Anyway, Balaam is summoned with the promise of a financial gain from Balak, the king of Moab, to pronounce a judgment against Israel. This is happening in in chapters 22 through 24 of Numbers. The first time he is summoned, he flat out says, no, I can't do it. I can't do what the Lord has asked me or what the Lord hasn't asked me. But the second time he says, no, but let me check again with God. And I believe the second time there was given more promise of more financial gain. So I think Balaam is looking for a way to sneak around what God wants him to do to get this financial gain. We know that in verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. Why this is confusing is because in verse 20, the second time he goes to God, God says, go, but only do what I command you to do, only what I, God, tell you to do. But if you notice in the English, there's a semicolon. I'm thinking that's a second thought that Balaam completely missed. He's like, yeah, go ahead and go do it. But then God says, but only do what I tell you. And Balaam misses that. 
In verse 32, the angel tells Balaam, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. So what has God so mad at Balaam for seemingly doing what God has told him to do? I believe the answer is found in Numbers 31, 8 and 16. In verse 8, we learn that Balaam was physically fighting against the nation of Israel because 12,000 armed men of Israel killed him. You don't kill someone that's on your side, unless it's a mistake, but I don't think this was a mistake. It flatly says Israel killed him. They tried to do it. I also, if you read chapter, or if you read 16, verse 16 of Numbers 31, we learn that the Baal worship at Peor, which, was, which is in chapters 25, was Balaam's idea. I'm not going to go into that one. That one's not for mixed audiences. It appears that even while Balaam was pronouncing the word of God, all for the sake of financial gain, and so it was with these people in Jude. They looked the part, they acted the part, but all they wanted was the money. Think the prosperity teachers of today. This is the very thing that Paul, speaking to Timothy, warned him to preach and teach against in 1 Timothy 6.5, when he says, these false teachers imagine that godliness is the means of gain. The next example we come to is Korah's rebellion from Numbers 16. This is a, an account in the, histori- in the historical account of Israel. Korah, Dathan, and Abram, Abra, yeah, Abram, and on, along with 250 chiefs of the congregation of Israel, decide that they're going to rise up against Moses because they don't like that, he was, that they were in a lower position than he was. This is clearly in verse 3 of Numbers 16. When Moses says, you have gone, or they, have, they said, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. And here's the point. They're mad because why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? In verse 9, he says, is it, is, in verse 9, Moses speaking to them says, is it too small a thank you for that the Lord God Israel has separated you, meaning these four guys in the 250. See, they were in a position of authority already. They weren't just guys that Moses was bossing around. They had authority in the camp of Moses. He says, Is it too small a thank you for you that the Lord God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, that you would seek the priesthood only? Moses says, are you not thankful for the lot that God has given you in your life? Are you not thankful for what God has called you to? You want something better yet? It's interesting to note that while these men think they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron, Moses actually tells them that we didn't choose this for ourselves. God put us in this position. You don't have a problem with us. You have a problem with God. And that problem with God is a big problem for you. Korah, Dathan, and Abram, along with their families and belongings, end up being destroyed and literally swallowed up by the earth. Read the account in Numbers 16, and God leaves no doubt that the Lord had sent Moses to do these works. And that has not been of Moses' own accord. Number 16:28. I believe the application to all of us in looking at these three examples is summed up in 1 Timothy 6:6. 6, 6. It's the rest of Paul's thought to Timothy where he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Cain, according to verse John 3, was godless in his deeds and therefore looked upon his brother with jealousy and murdered him. Balaam appeared to be godly, but he was just in it for the money. Korah had already been set apart for the service to God, 
But he wasn't content with what he had been given by God because it wasn't what Moses had. All of this flows, I believe, from an ungrateful, discontented heart. It's not being satisfied with what you have been blessed with by God, be it physical blessings, financial blessings, apparently prosperous, apparently prosperous ministry, the same abilities that somebody else has. Whatever the case may be, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Each and every one of us has been placed here on this earth for a reason. God has called you to a work. Ephesians 2 continues with which God prepared beforehand. Those works that God has given us, God gave us before the creation of the world. He has put you on this planet for a specific reason. It's not the same reason completely that he's put somebody else here. He has gifted you for a purpose. It's not going to be the same giftings that somebody else has. It's not going to look the same way. We saw this a little bit earlier. It's not going to look the same way as everybody else. God may not bless your ministry the way he blesses somebody else's ministry. God may not bless the work of your hands the way he has blessed the works of somebody else's hands. But he has called you to works that you are to walk in. So live the life that God has prepared for you and stop worrying and complaining about that it doesn't appear to be as glorious or glamorous as somebody else's. Because you have no idea what God has called that somebody else to walk through. These attitudes that we've just looked at is very dangerous in the house of the Lord. And that's what Jude walks into in verses 12 through 13. He gives us six descriptions of the danger and uselessness of these people. I just want to look at the first two because they're the most pressing dangers for us. He first says, hidden, these, these people, are, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Hidden or blatant, unrepentant sin in a church is a very dangerous thing. Over time, it will seek to wreck that church. The love feast of the early church was a meal that was shared between the body of believers, and it was usually concluded with the observance of the Lord's Supper, which we will be taking next week, which is why John told you over this next week, told us over this next week to prepare your hearts for that. Look at your heart. Ask the Lord to examine you. Ask the Lord to help you examine yourself. If there is any unrepentant sin in your life, it needs to be dealt with before you come to the table of the Lord. This is why I believe that. I believe that the Lord's Supper is a public display that states to all in attendance that we share in the communion with Christ, that we share in a personal and intimate relationship with him. That is why we take the Lord's Supper. It is remembering the sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins that he has given for us individually and corporately. Now you notice if you look at what Paul says that we are not that when we do not share in communion in a worthy manner, we are drinking and eating judgment upon ourselves. I do believe that if we approach the table in an unholy manner, that we are drinking that condemnation on ourselves. But just because that's a personal condemnation does not mean that it will not seek to wreck a church. Because to everyone in attendance, you are right with God when you take communion. Whether or not you are, we perceive you to be, because that is what communion is stating. I believe this is the basis to Paul's warning for the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. Paul is speaking expressly against sexual immorality, 
But I do not believe that it's just limited to that because at the end of the chapter, he lists more sins. But he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little bit of sin wrecks the whole church is what he's saying. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Last week I used this chapter in 1 Corinthians 5 um, and was asked to elaborate on it a little bit further at the end of the service. I will do that, not today, um, but I know that this is a complicated um, passage where it talks about not associating with someone who is guilty of these sins. I'm going to talk about that, hopefully the Lord willing, the next time I preach, but today we're just going to leave it at that. What I want us to see today is that a little bit of sin, any sin, not just sexual sin, does a lot of damage to the church. Anytime that sin is not confronted or corrected in a church, I believe it is the same thing as giving approval to that sin. Here's why I say that. Think about when you were raising your kids and if you are currently raising your kids. When your kids are off in the corner playing or when your kids were off in the corner playing and they were playing in a manner that was appropriate, they weren't hitting, they were just playing peacefully, did you say anything to them? Did you correct them? Probably not, because you were giving approval to the attitudes. You were giving approval to what they were doing. Now think of the flip side of that. When they're beating each other over the head with toys, when they're smacking each other, when they're fighting over toys, when they're arguing, are you just letting them go, do what they want to do? No. You are actively engaging in corrective discipline. You are correctively disciplining them of an attitude that is not appropriate for brothers and sisters to engage in. Take that exact same analogy and bring it into the church. When we are behaving in a way that we should be behaving, when we are living our lives in a way that we should be living our lives, we are not correcting each other. We are encouraging one another. We are building one another up in the faith. But we are not saying, hey, you really shouldn't be doing that. Why? Because we're giving approval to the lives of these people, to the lives of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. But when we are engaging in acts that are not appropriate for believers to engage in, the church is supposed to and called to step in and give corrective discipline in those areas. And again, I'll go into that the next time I'm up here a little bit more, Lord willing. But we can't just brush this under the rug and think it's going to go away because it won't. In Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus has given us guidelines for doing this. And again, we'll look at this next time. The next thing that, that Jude says is they are shepherds feeding themselves. I thought it was interesting as I was preparing for this message, I listened to another non-related message from David Platt. And I had a lot of wonderful insights given to, the, given to me from him through scriptures, things that where the New Testament correlates back to the Old Testament. And this is one of them. This shepherds feeding themselves is a direct quote from Ezekiel 34, in which the Lord, through Ezekiel, tells the leaders of Israel, Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You clothe yourselves with their wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound, the strayed you have not brought back, and the lost you have not sought. And with force force and harshness you have ruled them. These guys are wonderful shepherds, right? No, no they weren't. 
Everything they were supposed to be doing as leaders in the nation of Israel, everything they were supposed to be doing as leaders in Jude's letter, they weren't doing. And using this analogy, we're not obviously talking about literal sheep. We are talking about those who have called, been called to lead the sheep and the people of God. They were looking out and taking the best of everything for themselves while the people of God went without. They were sick, they were injured, they were straying away, and they were completely lost. So to those of us who lead in sharp contrast to the indictment that Jude gives these leaders, consider these words from 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. As leaders, that's what we've been called to. So if you lead in this church, that is your charge. We are to lead not under compulsion. We are to do it out of a willing spirit. We are to do it as God would have us, not for shameful gain, which was Balaam's problem, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. We've been given authority to help you. We've been given authority as leaders to help those among us, not to push them down, not to get them to do what we want them to do. So as leaders, your authority has been granted to you, to us, to build up the body of Christ. And that's what we come to now in Jude's letter. Verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The command that Jude gives us is to keep ourselves in the love of God and to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the command that Jude gives us. Right before that, he gives us two ways to do that. This is the anecdote I believe to be coming or following one of the people that Jude has been describing throughout the beginning of his letter. To build ourselves up in our most holy faith The word that Jude uses in the Greek translated faith is used in the sense of trusting in the gospel, of trust in Jesus as contained in the content of the gospel. Building up literally means to make nearer to fullness fullness or completion. So quite literally translated, Jude is telling you to make yourselves nearer to the fullness of Jesus Christ as contained and revealed in the gospel. What is also telling about the word building up, it's a verb, but it is a verb in the active and present tense, which means that we are to be doing this currently and have no assessment of when we will be done. So this is to continue until Christ returns. You don't get to a point in your Christian faith where you say, hey, I've learned it all, I'm done, I'm going to coast. That doesn't happen. So if you're looking for that, You'll never find it until Christ comes back or he calls you home. What does this mean for us? I believe it means that we need to be daily engaging with the word of God. It means that we must daily be reading God's word so that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of Christ. Why? So that we may get to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ which is the sense in which Jude uses the word. We do this so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's Ephesians 4, 13 and 14. That comes right after Paul tells us as leaders that the reason he's given us as leaders to the church is for this very reason, to help the church be built up into the fullness of Christ. But you're not going to do that if all you do is come and listen to John or I talk once a week. You can't possibly expect to come and hear us preach one message a week and be built up. I don't care how good the sermon is. It's not enough. In fact, if you go back to verse 4 or Ephesians 4, you will notice that this is the job of us to teach you how to build yourselves up. But again, the only way this happens is if you spend your time in the word of God. In talking about scripture, Peter says that his divine power, being God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory. He has given us what we need in the scriptures. We don't need to go outside of the scriptures. If we're in question, if we need to know an answer to a question, go to the scriptures. It's there. The practical stuff I heard one pastor say, you won't learn how to change your oil in the Bible, but you will learn how to live the Christian life. Listen to the words of the the words of the psalmist from Psalm 119. If you don't know Psalms 119 is entirely about the word of God. It is entirely about scripture along with Psalms 19. Psalms 19 is a very small look into what scripture is. Psalms 119 is 176 verses speaking about the word of God. So verses 9 through 11 of Psalms 119 reads, "How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word." With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verses 25 through 28 read, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I, t- when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. The famous verse from 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Verses 162 and 163 say, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Do you get the sense of the types of feelings that we should have towards the word of God? Friends, the most surefire way to keep yourself from falling for the deception of false teaching is to immerse yourself in the right teaching of Scripture. If you're in Strong 27 this year, you should have gone through the anchoring down portion. Anchoring down was talked about, anchoring your life in the only sure and steadfast anchor. And we find that in Hebrews 6, the anchor is Jesus Christ as revealed on the pages of Scripture. So in Strong 27, when you heard to anchor down, all, all they were talking about was getting with God daily, anchoring in him because he is the only anchor that will hold. The second thing we're told to do is we're told to pray in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a very vital part of the Christian life. It is one that is often neglected, and I admit to being poorly disciplined in this area at times. But prayer is the lifeline between God and us as believers. It is the way that we commune with God our Father. It should be noted that Jesus himself, while he walked on this earth, had to pray. We're told in Luke 5, 16, that he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
John 17, we have an account of what is called the high priestly prayer. And if you don't realize it, in that prayer, Jesus actually prays for you and I. The very end in verses 20 through 26, it is a prayer from Jesus to God the Father on the account of those who will hear because of the teachings of the apostles. That's us. So Jesus himself has prayed for you before he died. And he is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us in prayer. If the glorified Son of God needs to pray, you and I need to pray. In the garden, we see Jesus desperately calling out to God on the night of his arrest, appealing to him to remove this cup from me. This is Jesus bringing a very heartfelt plea to God the Father. Lord, I don't want to walk through this. We can do that, you know. We can go to God the Father and say, Lord, I don't want to do this. I'm not sure how I can do this. I don't want to do it. But we can't stop at Jesus' appeal right there. We have to see what he prays next. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. We have to, through prayer, submit our walk and our will to the will of the Father. I'll be honest, I would never have seen myself standing here. Ten years ago, there's no way on earth I'd have said, you're out of your mind. But here I am. And the Lord has a funny way of getting us here. I also believe that prayer should precede our scripture reading. And here's why I say that. In Psalms 119, which I just read from, verses 18 and 19 read, Open my eyes. This is a prayer of the psalmist to God on account of scripture. He says, Open my eyes that I may behold your wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Later in the same psalm, verses 35 and 36 36, he reads, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. We must be praying in this, we must be praying that the Spirit would come and give us guidance in understanding the things of God. This is why Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, I believe, prays for them the prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the hearts of your uh, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened now i recognize and i sympathize with those of us that may have a difficult time praying prayer does not come easy and there is a great book in the library called a praying life by paul a miller paul e miller i read it i believe oren has read it it is a very bo- a very good book practical book it is the insights into Paul Miller's prayer life that he prays for his family. And he, if you read it, he has a very difficult daughter. She has a mental illness. I'm not sure what it is anymore. But he prays for her to prayers that are not answered in the way you would think they would be answered. I'm not going to ruin the book for you. You can read it if you want to read it. At the end, he does walk through, I believe, if I remember correctly, ways that he processes unanswered prayer. He still has prayers that he's praying that are not answered. But throughout the book, he gives you examples of prayers that he prayed and the way that the Lord answered them. But I believe better than even Paul Miller is Jesus, who in Matthew 6, 9 through 15, gives us a lesson in prayer when he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Sometime we're going to walk through that prayer and look in depth at what Jesus was actually teaching us. 
Because if you don't realize that he was not just giving us words to recite. The very structure and thoughts invoked by the words in that prayer are incredibly important to understand. Someday we'll walk through it. If you also have problems praying, I believe the Psalms are full of prayers that we can pray. I have a list of several of them. There are Psalms of praise, Psalms 145, Psalms 104, and Psalm 66. There are Psalms of thanksgiving in Psalm 75 and 116. Psalms of trust in Psalm 63 and 23. In Psalms 119, like I said, is 176 verses long, but throughout that psalm, there are different prayers that you can pray. Prayers of blessing and lament, prayers for wisdom for yourself and for others. I've shared before the, the prayers that Paul prays for the Ephesians and the Philippians are good prayers that you can pray over yourself and over your family members. But like I said earlier, God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness in the Bible. And this includes examples of people who prayed and the prayers they prayed. Look for them. Start in the Psalms and just search the Bible for people that have prayed and give you examples of prayer lives. And as you do that, as you search the Bible for these prayers, you will be actively engaging in the steps of building yourself up in your most holy faith while you seek to learn and how to be praying in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have left nothing from us that we need to be built up in our most holy faith. That in the pages of scripture contain all that we need to know that pertain to a life of godliness. Father, thank you for the examples of the godly men and women throughout scripture. The examples of people that we can say, that we can see who stumble and fall, but they get back up again in your power. Father, I pray that as we go throughout this next week and the weeks that follow and the next months and the next years as a church family, that we would actively be seeking to build ourselves up, but not only ourselves, but be actively seeking to help build others up into the faith that you have called us to. Father, I pray that you would open your scriptures to us that as we sit down and read, we would understand and we would behold the wondrous things that are in it. That we would not just see the words on the page, but we would see Jesus Christ in those words. Father, that we would recognize and understand that the whole Bible points to Jesus Christ. That he is the culmination of everything in scripture. Lord, give us eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear the things contained in your precious and holy word. Father, may we not neglect, may the busyness of this life not push out our time we, spent with, we spend with you. Father, help us to make that time a priority. Whether it's early in the morning or late at night, Father, whenever, help us to see the importance of spending time in your word and with you in prayer. And Lord, as we go from this place, I pray that your spirit would go with us. Father, be with us as a church as we enter into this new season. Lord, as we seek your will, as we seek your face in all that we say and we do, I pray that you would be with us, that you would unite us. Father, that our driving force would, see the God, would be to see the gospel go forth, to see lives changed by a radical encounter with God the Father and Jesus Christ, his son. 
Be with us as we leave this place. Go with us. I pray that we worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in your name I pray. Amen.